0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn and laugh. Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, today our topic is the restaurant industry. We'll look at how restaurants are faring in this economy and we'll look at how Obamacare is affecting restaurant operations. We'll also share some best practices for securing the right location and some mistakes restaurant tenants and landlords should avoid. Please welcome my first guest, Hudson Reilly, SVP Research Knowledge Group with the National Restaurant Association. The NRA is the largest food service trade organization in the world, supporting nearly 500,000 restaurant businesses. Um, Hudson, really, thanks for joining us today. Well,
1: thanks for having
0: us. Well, we sure appreciate it. And uh, I guess the first thing that's on everyone's mind is how are restaurants doing now?
1: In 2013, despite a host of challenges, uh, restaurant industry sales across the country will actually reach a record high of $660 billion. That's up uh, over 3% uh, from 2012. However, growth rates uh, are definitely much more modest uh, than the before the recessionary period onset. Uh, but still this year, industry sales on a net basis will increase by $24 billion. Um, That's basically more than double the box office receipts of Hollywood. So the industry now uh, actually accounts for 4% of our national gross domestic product. And uh, on a typical day, roughly about one out of two American adults do actually use a food service option. So the industry continues to move ahead, uh, but there are definitely challenges regarding employment growth and income growth.
0: Well, that's amazing growth. So, so what's causing that growth in the industry right now?
1: Well, if you look at how consumers use uh, restaurants in America today, uh, if one looks at total food spending uh, across the country, 47%. Of all spending on food in America today is actually allocated towards the restaurant community that is up from uh, just twenty five percent way back in nineteen fifty five so the industry reflects a basic continual shift of consumers spending towards the away from home market and uh you know. Americans enjoy using restaurants. Ninety-three percent of American adults uh, report they enjoy going to restaurants, and you know you can't get 93 percent of Americans to agree on anything, uh, (laughs) but they do enjoy uh, using food service. And so uh, what's happened, though, with the recessionary period and its its aftermath is obviously employment growth has been much more modest, and that means that uh, income growth is also much more modest, and if there's one macroeconomic indicator that correlates well with growth in the restaurant industry, it's, uh, real disposable personal income and real just means inflation adjusted and disposables after taxes. Um, but those growth rates are positive. Uh, 2013 is the fourth consecutive year of positive sales growth for the industry. Um, but those growth rates are definitely much more modest uh, than they have been historically. And, uh, Perhaps most importantly, when you look ahead towards next year, um, we're looking for basically almost the same type uh, environment. In other words, there will be employment growth, there will be income growth, Um, but those rates are are not what uh, existed prior to uh, 2008.
0: Okay, well that's good, so you expect continued growth in in 2014, and and so what types of restaurants are doing well, and are there any uh, specialties that are suffering a little bit or having not as much growth?
1: Sure. It's, it's interesting. When you look at that total uh, sales volume in, for the industry, $660 billion, that's the wrap-up of almost 70 different segments of the industry. Uh, so at any point in time with an industry that, that is diverse and fragmented, at any point in time there are going to be segments that are outperforming industry uh, growth rates and those that are underperforming industry growth rates. Um, but when one looks at growth in the restaurant industry over the past decade plus, uh, that growth has been predominantly what we call convenience-driven, uh, in that if one looks at what the industry calls off-premises occasions, and that is takeout, delivery, drive-through, curbside, mobile food service, for example, the majority of growth for the industry um, over the past decade plus is in the off premises market and that's a very convenience driven uh, aspect of the industry And one of the reasons we follow what goes on with employment growth so much is if you think about it when a person's employed uh... they have less time for at home meal preparation and they also have a higher income level and so when national employment moves ahead and, and at good pace, uh, restaurant sales follow. And it's also important to keep in mind that with those 70 unique segments, uh, they're spread across uh, all states and metropolitan areas. And there are considerable uh, economic variations among different metropolitan areas within a state. And then there are different growth rates among the different regions. And and uh, in the end, there's no substitute from the industry perspective for employment growth, um, income growth, and population growth. And uh, if one looks at population growth uh, this past year, it's roughly still running under 1%, um, and, but there are substantial variations among the different regions. For example, some will enjoy population growth of, of uh, say, 2% or more. And so, in the end, as we always say, all restaurant sales end up being local. And uh, from the operator perspective, there's no substitute to know what's going on uh, with the local economy and the demographics in that economy.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And and Hudson, of these 70 segments, uh, which ones do you think that we'll see the most expansion from in 2014?
1: Well, it, what we call the quick service segment, which is the second largest segment, uh, the largest segment is table service where there's wait staff present. Um, the quick service segment is the second largest segment, and that obviously is a very convenience-driven segment. And uh, within that segment is, is a rapidly emerging category called fast-casual. And uh, that fast-casual segment, which has a lot of the attributes of a traditional quick-service restaurant, uh, but in terms of the food offerings and the decor uh, and some other attributes, it's much more of what was traditionally associated with casual dining. So uh, within the industry, there's, there's been consistent talk about this blurring of segments. Um, and so when you look at the fast casual segment, it's actually a hybrid category that incorporates some of the attributes of quick service as well as some of the attributes of traditional table service. Um, But in the end, there are almost a million restaurant locations across the country today, and that number increases about 1% a year. And so it remains an extremely competitive industry. It has been, it always will be, but it really is that competition which gives the industry its uh, sense of vibrancy and extreme responsiveness to consumers' evolving wants and needs on a very timely basis.
0: And you mentioned that uh, the restaurant industry is is doing well, but you also mentioned there are some headwinds. What are some of the current challenges?
1: Well, we survey restaurant operators every month about uh, what their top challenges are. And so, uh, not surprisingly, this year, government uh, has emerged for the first time uh, in the history of this survey, which is well over a decade now, uh, government is the top challenge. Now, part of that is obviously health care legislation related, but uh, roughly almost 30% of restaurant operators now report that the government is their top challenge. And then following closely behind that with one out of five operators report that the economy uh, still remains their top challenge. So um, food costs are somewhat ratcheting down the list now, but from the operator perspective, wholesale food price inflation uh, has been running at fairly high rates uh, six out of the past seven years. So um, it's in an environment where obviously there are challenges on a, on a daily basis, but uh, in the end, the it's a consumer-driven industry, and uh, the consumer cash-on-hand situation, even though it does remain tight, has improved substantially over the past four-year period. And uh, that improvement will obviously uh, continue uh, next year and and hopefully beyond. The industry employs over 13 million individuals now. One out of every 10 people working in America actually works in the restaurant industry now. So in terms of economic development and the ability for an area to offer a, a vibrant Dining community, you really do see now the realization that uh, restaurants, in terms of whether it's 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 a mall or a certain uh, area of the city, are important in revitalizing. Uh, certain areas.
0: Well, Hudson, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you being with us.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you.
0: For more information from the National Restaurant Association, visit restaurant.org. Well, in just a moment, we'll look at how Obamacare is affecting the real estate industry and restaurants. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast. For instance, last week, we interviewed Rod Santamassimo with the Massimo Group on sales tips. So if you want to increase your sales, check out that show. There are lots of interesting shows to choose from. Just uh, grab your phone, tablet, or computer and visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Of course, today we're exploring the restaurant industry. Please welcome my next guest, Michelle Neblett, Director, Labor and Workforce Policy, National Restaurant Association. Michelle, thanks for joining us.
2: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Michelle. And and to get us started, you know, how do restaurant operators feel about Obamacare and how it'll affect their business?
2: Well, we're uh, certainly taking a look at how all aspects of the law impact the business. Um, we have for a long time as the National Restaurant Association been involved in advocating for the industry as part of the debate and now uh, now that is it is the law uh, in terms of implementing regulations and trying to shape that so that uh, the government does take into consideration our unique workforce and the characteristics of our industry. Um, I think folks are uh, you know have taken a breath here with, the uh, transition relief and delay that we have in the employer mandate here for another year. Um, But folks aren't taking, uh, you know, that time to just sit back on their heels and and do nothing. They're uh, out there trying to figure out the costs and their options and to um, figure out what to do in terms of communicating with employees and such so that they are prepared uh, when January 1, 2015 comes that they are uh, in a good position to, uh, offer coverage or, uh, pay the penalties depending on, on what they
3: choose to do.
0: Okay. And one of our clients, um, has, I think he has about 70 restaurants and he was telling us that Obamacare would cost him a million dollars a year off the, off the bottom line. What are some of the increased cost estimates for, uh, restaurant operators and, and, and does it affect them a little more possibly than, than some industries?
2: Well, it's difficult to determine exactly how much this is going to cost, and certainly for a very diverse industry like ours, you know, across the board, uh, what the what those impacts are going to be. It's certainly very easy to figure out how much your, your potential penalty might be, um, and a lot of the early estimates were around those, but we are just uh, now here in September, a month Two months ago, uh, we got the proposed rules on the reporting requirements for large employers, and there ha- we have extensive uh, compliance costs potentially in-, in the reporting and the tracking that large employers must do. And so truly understanding what all the compliance costs are, the uh, everything that we must do to comply with the law, is going to take some time. Um, we we need to see the rules, and and those are still slowly uh, coming out of the Treasury Department and others.
0: Well, that's amazing that uh, you know they pass a law like this, and we still don't really know the the absolute uh, burden uh, cost wise to to operators. But uh, how are some of your members a- adjusting to deal with the burden?
2: Well, I think folks are, are trying to understand obviously this very complex law, and we're trying to help them do that. We have tools uh, on our website and as a member of benefits to help them do that. We are constantly doing educational sessions and webinars, and we have a a toolkit uh, folks can download to to get all the nitty-gritty details um, of this complex law. But like I said, I think people are taking the time right now that we have this this extra year to understand uh, the impacts to understand uh, what these exchanges are going to be like and what it will mean for their employees, um, to figure out how they're going to communicate with their employees and when and about what, um, and and just trying to figure out all those options before they make um, make their final business decisions about what they're going to do going forward. Um, with so many unknowns, you know, everybody's looking for that that certainty, and and that's, that's very hard to find right now but they're trying their best to figure out um you know what the options are and 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 be prepared so that they can make the best business decisions
0: okay and i've heard some operators say that they're taking some of their full-time staff and and taking them to part-time to to help with the situation Uh, do you hear any operators doing that
2: i think there are a lot of different strategies out there that people are considering um you know Certainly, uh, that has been uh, in the media and in and part of that conversation. And the law gives you options of ways to comply. Um, you know, you as a large employer, you can offer coverage or you can choose to pay the penalty. And if you do offer coverage, there are options of the different kinds of coverage that you can, can offer to comply in different ways with the law. So, um, you know, it, it depends on... Uh, your particular situation as an operator um, are you a small business? Are you right on that cusp of fifty full time equivalent employees, or are you you know very large and you you've been offering coverage for a long time and you plan to continue to do so and uh, you need to add more uh, employees potentially to to that offer of coverage um, you know it it, it ranges uh, there's a big range there in terms of who uh, and what, what we're talking about when it comes to strategy. So um, anything and everything, I think, is on the table right now for everybody, and um, and, and we'll see what the next year, year here, uh, how that plays out.
0: Okay, and we're talking with Michelle Neblet with the National Restaurant Association, and, and Michelle, uh, are you guys advocating any adjustments to how this is rolled out as an association?
2: Yeah, as, as we've seen the regulatory process play out, and we've been part of those advocacy efforts to shape the regs, we know that there are certain things only Congress can address, um, that the the law itself only allows the administration to go so far in providing the flexibility that we're asking them for. And three of the things that, that we are looking to Congress to address um, are, one, the definition of full-time employee. Uh, in the law, it states specifically that Uh, They've redefined full-time employment as 30 hours a week. Uh, That doesn't work for our industry and for many other industries, and so we're asking Congress to to change that to 40 hours a week, and there are several bills, both in the House and Senate, bipartisan efforts, actually, uh, to get that done. We're also asking Congress to address um, the definition of who a large business is under this law, 50 full-time equivalents, uh, in a labor-intensive industry, turns out to be a pretty small business, Um, and so the rules around how you calculate that are very complicated. Uh, At the very least, they need to be simplified, and and we think the definition needs to be changed. And finally, for the very large uh, employers, those with 200 or more full-time employees, they're subject to what's called an auto-enrollment requirement, and so on the 91st day of employment, they need to automatically enroll their full-time employees into coverage if the employee doesn't opt out. We think that's onerous. We think that's duplicative. And it also could be a financial burden on the employee that uh, just needs to be eliminated.
0: Okay. Well, we're close to the end of the segment here, Michelle, but where can listeners and viewers get more information on this?
2: Our website at restaurant.org forward slash healthcare is our uh, healthcare headquarters. It has links to our healthcare knowledge center, our other tools and solutions that we have for uh, restaurant operators out there to, to be able to use to to uh, to meet the requirements of the law.
0: Okay, that's great. And do they have to be a member to get to the information?
2: Not all of the information is, uh, is member only. Uh, some of our benefits are, but... Uh, there are, uh, there's plenty of information there
0: free for, for All everybody. Right. Michelle, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Well, stay tuned. Next, we'll talk to a California broker about site selections and mistake restaurant tenants and landlords should avoid. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're discussing the restaurant industry. Let's talk about some site location tips for restaurants and mistakes that uh, restaurant operators should avoid. Please welcome my next guest, Steven Zimmerman, CEO with Restaurant Realty Company, the largest California restaurant brokerage specializing in sales acquisition and leasing of restaurants, bars, and nightclubs. Stephen, thanks for joining us today
3: thank you for having me
0: well we appreciate it and uh, I'd like to start off with some uh, talk about some site uh, location issues what are some important considerations for a, a restaurant location
3: um, I think that uh, there are there are basically four major factors number one rent affordability uh, in other words the, the rent should not exceed a certain percent of the of the gross sales uh, in and what in percentage
0: depth- and what is a typical range there
3: uh, it should be no more than six to ten percent. Ten percent fully loaded. In other words, mm-hmm. it's a triple net lease. They have to pay real estate taxes, insurance, building insurance, and CAM costs. It shouldn't be more than ten percent of sales. Okay, uh, max. Uh, number two, the demographics need to match the concept requirement. Uh, in other words, if it's a you know the price point, uh, the guest check average per person has to be in sync with what are the household incomes, per capita incomes. And other demographic criteria, education level, et cetera, in order to to, to mesh with the, uh, the the specific location. Right. Um, the uh, trade area draw uh, is number three. That would be you know what what radius are you talking about? Do um, you need a lot of foot traffic? You need vehicular traffic? And realistically, you know how far of a, a a radius distance uh, are people going to come to your restaurant if it's a planned dining restaurant, a sluggy restaurant, they may come fifty miles. If it's an impulse restaurant, they may come one or two blocks mm-hmm. so that's a, that's an important consideration and then also major market generators in a particular location, such as uh, shopping centers, theaters, hospitals, schools, churches, office buildings uh, you know are you in a tourist area so it's nice to have these these market generators going. Uh, in addition to your base, uh, customer, your target base customer, uh, to help complement your, your flow of, uh, of business.
0: Okay. And those are excellent tips. So, uh, in case you listeners don't know it, uh, Steven's, uh, written a book on, uh, restaurants and operations, and he also has, uh, owned many restaurants. So he's not just a, a broker selling leasing locations and selling restaurants. He has plenty of experience and, and your experience, Steven, uh, what are some mistakes? uh... that a restaurant operator should avoid maybe say the top three
3: okay i would say uh... number one uh, secondary location mm-hmm. uh... you just cannot compromise on location location mm-hmm. is paramount i've seen many operations be very mediocre in terms of the food quality and the service level etc but they've been able to survive because they have such a strong <laughs> location
0: they're in the right spot um, yeah.
3: exactly so that's number one number two under capitalization unfortunately when people uh... project out what they're cash flow needs are. They don't build in the proper worst-case scenario numbers, and consequently, uh, I've seen a lot of successful restaurants have to close because uh, their initial startup didn't meet their criteria, and they ran into negative, and they ate up their working capital, and they didn't have enough money down the road to have the proper reserves to keep the restaurant running at the proper level. So undercapitalization, number two. Number three, again, going back to my first, is rent affordability seen a lot of restaurants do great volumes but they don't make any money because they're paying too much rent. So those are the three biggest mistakes
0: that I see. Alright, well those are uh, great points. I remember when I was a kid and started out in commercial real estate, when I had somebody want to open a restaurant, I'd say, well, show me that you have at least a million dollars and I'll go show you some restaurant space. Right. Uh, otherwise, right. I, I'm kind of busy right now. But uh, well, let's talk about uh, landlord considerations uh, if we can. Um, what are some tips for uh, landlords related to choosing and working with restaurant uh, operators?
3: yeah well, I'm extremely sensitive to this, having done you know about a thousand transactions, but in addition to being uh, a landlord tenant, a landlord, excuse me, a landlord, a restaurant landlord myself, uh, n- number one in Paramount, the landlord wants to make sure that the prospective tenant is financially and operationally qualified. They have minimum of probably three to five years ownership or management experience. They have enough cash flow to 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 buy the business and have plenty of working capital in reserves. Um, and they have a strong you know, balance sheet, because in those cases, they want a personal guarantee on smaller deals. Uh, so they looking, they're looking for tangible assets, you know, such as real estate, uh, where, worst-case scenario, they, and they, have, they have to take legal action to get the tenant out. They can get a judgment and be made whole on, on, on a tenant that does not succeed. Mm-hmm. So strength of the guarantor is important. They obviously want market rent. Um, and if you can't afford the market rent as a tenant, then you shouldn't move forward. But most m- most landlords are looking to, to maximize the value of the building. They want market rent. The, number, number three, they're very concerned about keeping their rent up with inflation, so they want yearly increases, usually tied into consumer price index increases or some fixed amount, which will cover you know inflation.
0: Okay. Um, All right, well, Stephen, those are great tips. Thanks for joining us today, sir. Thank you. For more information from Stephen, visit restaurantrealty.com and uh, in just a moment, we'll speak to John Neville about some legal issues related to restaurant leases for landlords and tenants. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Hey, you're invited to check out the show on YouTube. Just uh, visit YouTube and search for the channel Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're discussing the restaurant industry. Please welcome my next guest, John Neville, a partner with the law firm Arnold Golden Gregory. Uh, John's practice is focused on retail real estate. A large part of his practice involves representing landlords and tenants in the restaurant industry. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, John, I'd like to start off with some tips or maybe some mistakes to avoid for retail or or let's focus on restaurant, on restaurant tenants in their lease, what mistakes should they avoid?
4: I mean, I think the most common mistake we see is related to construction. Because in putting together a restaurant deal, you know, usually you have the brokers who are knowledgeable in real estate and locations. You have attorneys, you know, who, who do these deals and paper them, you know, all the time. But there are construction aspects to every lease and to every restaurant deal that often get overlooked or ignored. You know, usually what'll happen, is you have the work letter that's attached to the letter of intent, and that's usually developed by the construction team of a restaurateur. Sometimes developers will look at that very carefully. Some developers won't look at it at all. But when you go to lease, which is your permanent document, a lot of times that gets missed. It doesn't get checked, or even if it does get checked to confirm the letter of intent, people don't understand what it means, and those can lead to um, a lot of expenses that people don't plan on.
0: And what should they look for in that uh, work letter? What what what? particularly should they consider?
4: I mean, there are a whole host of issues, but I mean, first of all, you know, there are, each restaurant has their own utility specifications, for instance, you know, we need to make sure that the utilities that are being provided by the landlord are actually what the restaurant needs. And if they're not, we need to determine who's gonna pay for those. Additionally, there are things like grease traps that um, are important to make sure you decide where it's going to be, how big is it going to be, how many people are going to share it, you know, dumpster issues. You know, how big is the dumpster going to be? How many of them will there be? Where will they be located? Yeah. You know, and the list can go on and on and on. But um, it's operational issues that will come into play from the day that restaurant opens that just for whatever reason, people don't think about when they're at lease because they get focused on the dollars and cents mm-hmm. and get focused on the legal. And um, it's an important part of that deal.
0: That's a good point. And, and if you're a landlord and you're used to dealing with the retail tenants, well, this is a little more involved tenant, isn't
4: it? It's a lot more involved. And so that's why I think the landlord needs to have somebody on their team that's really a restaurant construction construction expert. And the tenant needs to have that as well. Now, a lot of the more sophisticated restaurants, the more established ones, they have an in-house construction team. But often I see even those tenants won't flip the final lease to the construction team before they sign it. So what will wind up happening is you'll get two or three months into development and we'll be having to do lease amendments because there are construction issues that just weren't addressed in the lease. So, you know, we tell our entire team and tell all of our clients that before you sign a lease, whether you're a developer or a tenant, you need to make sure that a qualified construction person has reviewed that work letter.
0: Right. And I guess another mistake a tenant could avoid is HVAC, right, uh, you know, how, how much are they going to really need for that restaurant, and is it there, or is that a cost that they have in their budget,
4: right? Or, you know, the <laughs> who replaces it when it's broken, right? right. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, who, yeah. that's the issue, you know, what's yeah. a replacement versus what's a repair? You know, most tenants are required to have a maintenance contract, and it's mm-hmm. pretty common to have that placed on the tenant, but, you know, if you're a new if you're a new tenant coming into a building with a 15-year-old unit, you know, it's realistic to think that that unit's going to break in two years, three years, five years, mm-hmm. who's going to replace the unit, you know, if I'm the restaurateur, to me, that's a landlord expense, because mm-hmm. had there had it been a new space landlord would probably be providing that unit. And if if I'm, I'm a developer, m- on the other hand, it's a, you know, it's a cost of doing business, the <laughs> right. tenant should consider itself lucky that it's coming into a space and not having to install an HVAC immediately. Right. So that's often heavily negotiated. But again, it's something that can be missed in the letter of intent. Yeah. And that's something that can be glazed over in the lease but they're real dollars and cents that need to be thought about.
0: Okay. And John, what are some other costs in a lease that a tenant should consider as they're doing an LOI and a lease? And uh, uh, what are some mistakes to avoid there related to cost?
4: Well, in the, in the restaurant business in particular, tap and impact fees are huge. Mm-hmm. You know, tap and impact fees at its base are taxes that are imposed by a jurisdiction mm-hmm. because of the impact that a restaurant might have on that, jurisdic- on mm-hmm. that, on, on that infrastructure. Restaurants use more water. Restaurants have more capacity for a lot of different utilities. And a lot of jurisdictions are going to impose an additional tax because of that impact. And so it's heavily debated sometimes who's going to pay these impact fees. If you're in some states, those are very small, two or $3,000. Mm-hmm. If you're in other states like Florida, it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay impact fees. Mm-hmm. So it, one line in the lease can be a $100,000 swing if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. So you know, you need to decide who's going to pay those impact fees, whether the landlord will pay for all of them, Whether the landlord pays for none of them or a common split sometimes is that the landlord will pay to bring the space consistent with a regular retail space and the tenant will pay excess now if i'm a restaurant in florida i'm not agreeing to that because Mm -hmm. that again could be hundreds of thousands of dollars if i'm in another jurisdiction that might be a more even split Your contractor and your architect are the ones to find that out.
0: Okay. And I guess exclusives are important, too, even if you're a tenant, uh, because you might ask for so so much on an exclusive that it could really hurt you in the long run, right?
4: Yeah, I'm a big believer that your exclusive should not always just be a carbon copy of your use, Mm -hmm. because your use clause may be broad to allow things to evolve, but your exclusive as a restaurant really should be limited to your core product.
0: And and for the folks who are just uh, rolling around the dial and they're not in the restaurant or or retail industry, tell them what an exclusive is. Is. And
4: exclusive is you have the right to sell certain products yeah. period if you're a hamburger restaurant yeah. you know you have the right to sell hamburgers right. nobody else can sell hamburgers right. you're granted that exclusive right by the developer right
0: and then sometimes other restaurants in the center, if you will, can, can help be a draw, right? So if those exclusives are too broad, it could actually hurt the tenant as well?
4: Correct. You want to have other restaurants around you in a big enough shopping center because ultimately you want that center to be a destination for people to come and eat. And if right. they choose you once a week or twice a week and choose somebody else once a week or twice a week, that's okay. Right. But if you go for too broad of an exclusive and block everybody out, you're limiting your chances of quality restaurants coming in next door to you, which limits your foot traffic to at your restaurant as well.
0: Right. Okay. Well, good point. All right. Well, we're going to look at uh, some other aspects of leases and and some tips for landlords related to uh, real estate leases and restaurant leases. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-9000 bull. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about the restaurant industry. My guest is John Neville with AGG. And John, let's talk about some of the issues related to franchisees and uh, restaurant leases.
4: Well, I think the first issue is that people don't know they're dealing with a franchise almost until it's too late. Right. Yeah, It's a question that seems not to be asked on the front end by a lot of people. And you get brand X and the developer thinks they're getting brand X. And um, the next thing you know, at the end of the lease, there's a new LLC that's inserted, only to find out that it's a franchisee of that brand instead.
0: And for the for the guy that just is rolling the dial and just got the show, uh, we're talking lucky about- Lucky guy. <laughs> lucky guy, right. <laughs> we're talking about whether uh, your tenant is a franchisor or the big national company, or if this is a franchisee who's guaranteeing the lease, right? Well,
4: that's correct. I mean, if you mm-hmm. have a corporate deal, it's mm-hmm. going to be the corporate financials behind that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a franchisee, the corporate financials are irrelevant. You know, right. it's an independent enterprise where that franchisee has been given the right to use the system Mm -hmm. and the right to use the marks. But otherwise, they're they're not legally related to the franchisor. So it makes a big difference. More importantly, though, in in the lease document, and in any other type of use agreement that you may have with a developer, you know, a lot of times the franchisor has requirements that they want in all of their deals. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know, it's a franchise deal to the very end, it's quite possible that the landlord and the tenant may think they have a deal done, only to have the franchisor say in the eleventh hour, you know, this is a franchise deal, and I have three pages of terms that I need included in that lease, and we see a lot of deals get delayed, you know, because of that. You know, right. we represent some franchisors as well, though, and you know, we tell our our franchisees and the systems to please get those lease terms. Upfront rather than waiting to the end of the deal because we're a lot more successful in getting them in when they're submitted.
0: Oh, that's right. And the franchisor wants those, uh, their addendum to override the lease, right? It
4: has to, yeah. yeah I mean, most, import- mo- most importantly, a franchisor needs the rights to be able to cure some defaults of the mm-hmm. franchisee. Mm-hmm. They need the right to be able to debrand if the space goes dark, mm-hmm. you know, and they need the right to be able to unilaterally take over by an assignment mm-hmm. um, without the landlord's consent if the situation dictates that. And these yeah. are pretty standard requests by franchisors. And developers usually can agree to those things if they're negotiated up front. But if the developers negotiated their whole lease and then gets hit with a host of issues at the end, that sometimes doesn't go over as well. Okay. They
0: also got to think about franchisee and franchisor and and those entities – when the lease is is getting signed or the guarantee is getting signed to to be sure who they know who that that guarantor is right
4: easy thing to do is always ask for financials if i'm representing a developer no deal franchise non-franchise retail restaurant whatever no deal should be signed until you have the actual financials of the entity in your hand
0: right um that tells a story and if the entity they have the financials on matches the entity exact entity that's signing the lease or the guarantee right
4: That's correct. And uh, on the flip side of it, you know, sometimes you'll get personal financials from an individual, but if if that individual is not signing a guarantee, the personal financials also often don't matter.
0: Okay. And what are some tips for landlords related to restaurant leases?
4: Landlords need to make sure, and the exclusives, number one, that they're not granting too broad of exclusive to Mm -hmm. preclude themselves from doing other deals. Mm -hmm. Landlords also need to make sure of the impact on their center of doing restaurants Mm -hmm. because restaurants have higher parking ratios. Mm -hmm. Restaurants have higher standards for compliance with certain laws, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. And landlords, before they sign that deal, need to know what other expenses may get triggered because they're doing a restaurant deal.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And they also should review all their other leases, right, and make sure they're not doing something with this restaurant's parking or their lease or, or or their exclusives, they could violate another lease that they have on the center, right?
4: Well, I would say not just review the leases, but they need to review the documents of record too. Yeah. A lot of times the big anchors, the Walmarts of the world, the Kohl's, um, have very well-written but long REAs that are of record right. that limit, where you can put a restaurant, how big they can be, limit parking ratios, and so not just the leases, but you need to know what you've agreed to with your anchors to make sure that you're not violating that and you're keeping your big credit tenants happy.
0: And that's even on an out parcel where they're not involved in the ownership anymore, but you've got something on title that's a restriction. Well, John, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, next week, we're going to have a a great show on real estate development and construction, and we'll look at uh, real estate development's effect on GDP, jobs, and the economy in the U.S. We'll also talk to some leading developers on their view of construction, zoning, and securing tenants in the new economy. Well, thanks for joining us today. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by your friends at Bull Realty, France Media, Atlanta Office Liquidators, and Wiseman, Noack, Curry, and Wilco. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com.